Let me invite you to go to Ephesians chapter 2 one more time in this uh, short series from death to life. Uh, the song we just sang, Why Should I Boast? Uh, I will not boast in anything except for Christ and his resurrection really is where the Apostle Paul has left off in this passage. He's uh, talked about why we need life, why God gave us life, and then how God gave us life. And that was uh, we saw last week in verses 8 and 9, that salvation is God's work, not ours, that it is a gift, not a reward, and that salvation exalts the giver, not the receiver. And if you look at the very end of verse 9, it uses those words, so that no one may boast. So the, the work of God's rich grace and kindness to us in Christ is so that we will look at Christ and boast in him and his death and resurrection and not boast in ourselves at all. And that's what he does in verse 10, is to actually help substantiate that, to give further reasons for why we cannot boast in ourselves. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Notice the first word of verse 10, for. That's showing us that it's coming as an explanation of the end of verse 9, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. And so the, the text of Scripture is going to ground the reason God's exalted and we actually were humbled is because of what God has done for us through Christ. And so I want to just draw out from this short verse of Scripture three truths this morning to help us understand why anyone who goes from death to life will boast only in Christ and not in him or herself. And the first is really, it's almost a restatement of the point of verses 8 and 9, and that is that God saves us by his work. Notice verse 10, we are his workmanship. And the word his, they, the Greek language can be more flexible than ours, and it can actually bring the pronouns up to a place of emphasis, and that's really what this does. It's his workmanship. That, that is the key to this, that God has done this. And the word used for workmanship here is one of a skillful craftsman or a work of art. It's used, for instance, in the, in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament of the skilled work that went into building the tabernacle. We would look at it and say, that's a, a piece of craftsmanship or a work of art. And this text is saying that we are God's work in that way. He has crafted us. He has made us. It's his work that has been accomplished. But notice also, right after that statement, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. And, and uh, that created is coming in to help explain the workmanship. What kind of workmanship is it's a work of creation that God has done in Christ Jesus. And he's talking about God making something uh, new. Really, in, in terms of the other ways that it's used, even in this book of Ephesians, it's, it's about God's exercise of his power to bring things into existence. Look at chapter 3 and verse 9. Because here, the same word is used about what we just call all of creation. The end of verse 9, 3, 9, to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. So, so God's the maker of everything that has been made. I mean, one of the classic ways of understanding God is that there's the creator and then there's the creation. Those, those are fundamentally separate from each other because God is the source of all things. Nothing existed and God brought it into existence. He created everything. 
He's the maker of heaven and earth. But look also in chapter 2 and verse 15, because it's used with reference to the formation of the body of Christ. Verse 15, by abolishing, 2.15, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinance, so that in himself he might, and here's the word make in the New American Standard, but it's the same word for creation, that he might create the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross. So the, the, the existence of the body of Christ as the joining of both Jew and Gentile into this one new spiritual entity is described as God's creative work. He brought something into existence that did not exist before. It's a new person, new man, the body of Christ. That's the same word then he uses in chapter 4 and verse 24. Look there at what he does in the work of, of salvation. 4.24 says, And put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. All right, so this language of creation uh, as you can see how it's used, I mean, there, there was nothing and God created everything out of nothing. There was no entity called the church or the body of Christ and God brought it into existence. The same thing is true about individuals who were dead in trespasses and sin. They had no life and God made them alive. He gave them a new birth. He created them in Christ Jesus. Right? It's, it's God's work to do this. And it's established, if you go back to chapter 2 now, in the strongest kind of language. Just like there was nothing and God spoke it into existence. There was no spiritual life in humans because of our depravity and rebellion against God, and God spoke it into existence. Through the word, through the gospel, God brought us to life by his power. We are his workmanship. So, so think about it this way. If uh, whoever arrives in heaven, and they go to answer the question, why me? Right? Why me? Why am I here? The answer to that question will never be in them. It will not be because I was better than other people, those people who are condemned for eternity. I was better than them. I did more good than I did bad, so God let me in. It, it won't be because I was smart enough to choose him. I was, I was wise enough to believe the gospel. Because then that would be something in that person. And they would be able to stand inside the gate of heaven and go, I'm here because I was able to see better than them. I was able to think better than them. I was able to respond when they refused to respond. Or I was more moral or more righteous, more religious. The answer will never be to why me, anything in me. It will always be in God. I mean, this text has been really clear about that. We were dead in trespasses and sins. We were under the dominion of the prince of the power of the air. We were defiled and depraved, pursuing the lusts of our flesh and of our mind, and we were doomed. We were by nature the children of wrath. 
There was nothing in us to commend us to God, nothing in us to make us savable compared to other people. Right? We weren't, we weren't at the level higher than anybody else so God's reach could get us. Our arms weren't longer than everybody else so that we could reach up to him. No, this text is absolutely clear that in the midst of our condemnation, but God, who's rich in mercy for his great love with which he loved us, that he made us alive, that he raised us up, that he seated us in the heavenly places, that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. So so when we cross into eternity, we will not boast in anything except for Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why me? Because you love me. Why me? Because Christ died for me. Why me? Because you made me alive. Right? That's the only answer the scripture gives so that all of the glory belongs to God. No one can boast in his sight. Because the very act of boasting, you'd step inside the gate and you'd go right back out the gate because you would be taking glory from the one who deserves all the glory. You would actually be defying the work of God's grace in that way. And we need to realize the sinful tendency in the human heart to boast. And that shows up in positioning ourselves as either worthy of salvation because we somehow earned it or of contributing to our salvation in some way that makes it dependent on us. Right? If our salvation depends on us, then we have something about which we can boast. And the scriptures are clear that he saves us by his work. Look at the second line of verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So God saves us by his work. I think the second truth that we need to see in this text is that God shapes us for his work. He shapes us for his work. He created us in Christ Jesus Four good works. And the four in this case is, has the, 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 the flavor of purpose or goal. Why did God do this workmanship? Why did he create us in Christ Jesus? It was for this purpose that we would serve him in good works. So his very creating of us was for that. It, it was to accomplish that, to carry that out. And so when we think about how God brings glory to himself, it is not just that the good works are not on the front end, but that they're on the back end, right? If we're saved by our good works, then we receive credit for it, if there are no good works involved in the life of salvation, then it doesn't honor God. But as the result of God's serving work, then God is magnified through, if I could put it this way, the, the, the beauty of his workmanship, right? What God has created actually is described as being full of good works. Those things which are morally right and beneficial to others in that regard. And all of this happens, notice in the text, in Christ Jesus. Right? So the work that he's doing is vitally in connection 
to what Jesus has accomplished. I just want us to be reminded of, go back over to chapter one for a moment. We're not going to work through the, the whole blessing that Paul does here in one gigantic sentence in the original language from verses three to 14. It, but, but here's the, here's sort of the topic of the sentence in verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So, so all of the riches of God's blessings to us come to us in Christ. And, and he, he talks about God's eternal plan for that in verses four, five, and six. Then notice in verse seven, here's what we could say, particularly found in Christ. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So, so when we think about what it means to be in Christ, Paul would say the tremendous spiritual blessings of that is that we have redemption. We, we were enslaved to sin and we have been redeemed or bought back by God through the blood of Christ. Redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of our trespasses. Remember chapter two, verse one, you were dead in trespasses and sins. In chapter two, verse five, you were dead in your trespasses we have forgiveness of our trespasses in Christ. All that we've done to violate the will of God and break his commandments, we have forgiveness of that in Christ. Those sins have been paid for. The debt has been remitted. We, we are forgiven in Christ. And notice verse 12 because this is important to see. The, I'm just gonna draw your attention to the words uh, in the middle of the verse, to the end that we were, her, we were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. So verse seven, relationship with Jesus Christ brings redemption and forgiveness. Verse 12 makes it clear that a relationship with Jesus Christ means to hope in him that you're looking outside of yourself to Christ for the promised salvation. Your hope is in Christ, even as we sang this morning, right? He's our, our hope in life and death. I'm putting all of, all of the eternal uh, hope of salvation, all is resting in Christ, right? This is, this is obviously... Uh, nothing can, can really capture the magnitude of this, but sometimes we use a phrase, I'm putting all of my eggs in one basket. When it comes to my salvation, all of my eggs are in the basket of Christ. He's my hope. I'm not, I'm not spreading out my investments in case one of them goes down. I can sort of stabilize the problem, I am all in on Christ. If Christ doesn't save me, I will not be saved. My hope is in Christ. And that hope is defined, look at verses 13 and 14 in, in connection to the gospel. Again, in him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, All right? So Paul's saying to these believers, they have these blessings that have come to them in Christ. It's in him, they have forgiveness and, and uh, redemption. It's, it's hope in Christ because it's in him when they heard the message of the gospel, the truth, right? The message of salvation, they believed it. That's what it means to hope in Christ, right? The faith, right, is, is the full investment into the message of Christ, right? It's a knowledge of it. I know what the scriptures say about Jesus Christ. That's why it can be called the message of truth, right? There's a there's content 
that has to be believed. It's not just sort of a fuzzy feeling. You know, sometimes I'll talk with people, I'll start talking about their relationship. Well, God's always sort of been there in my life. I mean, I've always sort of felt like I have a relationship with him. And you begin to ask them about that, and it's about as fuzzy as the feeling. Right? But but here's Paul, the apostle, saying there is a message of truth that is the good news of salvation. So it's it's what God has revealed about himself and his saving work through Jesus Christ and about you as a sinner needing to be saved, right? It's, it's that message of truth that you know it and you actually embrace it. You agree with it, that, that it's true. And therefore you entrust yourself, right? So, like a technical definition of saving faith would be a knowledge of the finished work of Jesus Christ as revealed in Scripture and our assent or agreement with it and unreserved trust in it. That unreserved trust part is all the eggs in one basket. I, I, I'm, I am... Uh, putting my hope in Christ. And when that happens, right, that's the work of new creation that God's doing. He, and if I use the language of 2 Corinthians 4, he, through the gospel, is saying, let there be light in your soul. Right, God, who said, let there be light, has shined the light of the gospel into our hearts. God speaks through the gospel to create faith in Christ. And when he creates faith in Christ, he does so so that you might serve him, right? He is shaping your life so that you might do his work. Go back to chapter 2, verse 10, please. As I I said in sort of in passing about it, the good works here, the word good, I think, can, can reflect sort of the dual ideas of moral, right? They're not sinful, but also that they're beneficial, right? They, they, they have benefit. So, so what this text is saying is that Christ has done this work for us. God has created us in Christ Jesus for works that are described as moral or beneficial. They're good works. You know, people, uh, I mean, in the true sense of the term, a legalist, okay, the, the, like the biblical sense of a legalist is a person who says you keep the law in order to be saved, right? You do good works in order to be saved. Uh, that kind of position always argues against the gospel message which says it's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Or like verse eight, right? It's not of, uh, it's, I'm sorry, verse nine, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. So that, but they, they argue against the biblical position by saying, well, you just want to be able to, you know, have a ticket to heaven and never serve Christ or never be good or be righteous. And, and the biblical answer is nonsense. The Bible actually says a lot about good works as the consequence of God's saving grace, not as the cause of salvation, right? So so good works aren't done so that you can be saved, but everyone whom God saves, it will produce good works. Right? That's, that's, that's how you balance verses 9 and 10. Right? It is not the result of works. That is, the cause of your salvation is not works. But then verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. The consequence of God's work is that it will produce good works. Right? And, and that's, that's consistently said in the scriptures as the purpose of God's saving work. Listen to, 
Listen to what Titus chapter 2 and verse 14 says about Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. So, so the backdrop of verses 1 through 3, that would be the lawless deeds. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 of Ephesians are the lawless deeds that he's talking about in Titus 2, 14. And verse 10 is the zealous for good deeds created in Christ Jesus for good works. I mean, and it's, it's absolutely essential to get that, right? If, if you get the order wrong, you have shut out faith, right? Because works exclude faith. So if you try to work your way to salvation, you are abandoning grace and faith and will never be saved. But if you try to exclude works from the result of salvation, then you're actually undercutting what real faith is. Right? That's why James talks about that faith will produce works. It's the evidence of what God has done. I mean, when God creates something, it, it shows the evidence of God's power. And that's what he's after. It's not the, con- uh, the cause, but the consequence. And because it's the result of God's grace, it can never be a reason for boasting. Right? Remember, that's what he's arguing about here. Why must we not boast? Well, because we're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So, so, so when the good works actually come in the believer's life, it's not a reason to boast before God. Look, whoa, look at how, look at how productive I am. Look at how good I am. Look at what I accomplish. Even those are actually the result of God's grace. That's why Paul at one point confronts the Corinthians who were manifesting uh, pride about things and taking pride in human appearance and human performance. And he says, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't? Why do you act like you're the source of this? It actually came to you from God, so God should get the glory. All right, so once we recognize we cannot save ourselves by works, so we trust in Christ and receive the gift by faith, that actually produces in us a life of good works, but we don't boast about it at that point. We look in awe at what God has done. 1 Corinthians 15, I am what I am by the grace of God. It's God's grace that produces it, so it produces no ground of boasting. It is vital that believers pursue a life like this as a response to God's work. So he saves us by his work. He shapes us through this new creation for his work, right? He's created us for good works. And the very nature of salvation is to produce those, all right? So look at the last part of verse 10 now. He says in verse 10, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them, all right? And this is, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating statement. Here's the, I'll just give you, the, if you're trying to track, all right? God saves us by his work. He shapes us for his work. Right? by his work and for his work. And this is actually, I think, showing us that God sets the course. Right? He sets the course for our work for him. Right? That God beforehand prepared so that we would walk in them. And what he says about this is the good works that God wants us to do, they are actually part of his eternal plan for his new creation. So when God steps into a life to save that person, 
He is saving them because he has a plan for them to serve him. Right? He actually has good works prepared beforehand that they should walk in them. That's, that's, a, that's an amazing truth that God has something for each believer to do to carry out his purpose, right? Go back to chapter 1 and verse 4, because I think it can help us see that that, um, this prepared beforehand is not an unusual in terms of the concept of God doing something before everything was, right? Look at verse 4 of chapter 1. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. All right. So God's choice of us in Christ was before the foundation of the world. Now, notice here's why he chose us that we would be holy and blameless before him. All right. So again, here's, here's us trying to understand the unfolding drama of God's redemption, and it says, before the foundation of the world, God chose us in him, right? Chapter 2, verse 10 says, before, God prepared before good works that we would walk in. So God moves in time to save us, and he does so. He chose us. He created us in Christ Jesus, right? You see the parallel? He chose us. He created us in Christ Jesus. He chose us so that after our salvation, we would be holy and blameless before him. He created us in Christ Jesus so that after that workmanship of God, we would walk in good works. That God has a planned pathway for me that I would serve him on, that I would use what he's given me for his glory, right? So, so this, this, uh, this is, to me, it's, it's amazing, right? To think about the way God is, is bringing together, if I could put it this way, at least a couple of things in terms of what the book of Ephesians is saying, right? So, Think about those verses on creation that I talked about earlier, right? Chapter 2 and verse 15 says that he created one new man, right? Chapter 4, verse 24 says that a believer is created in the likeness of God uh, in holiness and righteousness and the truth. So, So God's creative activity in the life of a sinner to make them alive and produce good works is operating in the individual, but also in the context of the community of believers, right? And I think that helps us understand how this pathway is there, because when Paul starts to unpack all of this, he comes into chapter four, and he starts to talk about the work of Christ in his body to see it grow up into him, And he talks about each part supplying exactly what it was intended to supply. Every joint functioning the way God intended it to function. So here's what I I say to you. So so when, when, if you know Jesus Christ, right, you have heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed it. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Christ brought you into his body with some specific thing to do. You are a part that functions in that body to supply what that body needs. Right? That's, That's God's prepared beforehand good work for you to walk in. Right? Because Christ, Christ is going to lay down his life for his bride, the church, so that he can accomplish his purpose, so that one day, chapter 5 says, he will present her to himself. 
spotless. And he's working to do that right now as the head of the church through the body as each part contributes what God intended it to contribute. I mean, there is a massively wonderful, amazing master plan being worked out. We are his workmanship, his craftsmanship. God is saving people from the most unlikely of of situations and, and taking them and bringing them into Christ, preparing them for good works, and putting them into a body of believers so that they can contribute to that body so that God can be glorified. I mean, it's just an awesome thing that God is doing through the work of Christ to build his church, through the work of Christ to redeem individual sinners and incorporate them into the community of the redeemed. And it's a plan from before the foundation of the world, right? Because the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world in the mind of God, right? The lamb slain, Revelation talks about. So the work of God is being carried out in this way so that God is exalted in it. It is that his sovereign purposes have prepared this beforehand, right? And, And again, Remember, all of this is unpacking why no one may boast. Because before you came to Christ, you had nothing to commend yourself to Christ. You had nothing worthy of salvation. You, in fact, deserve condemnation as I did. But God, rich in mercy and love, moved to redeem you. And when he did, it was a powerful work of creation So your salvation is not something about which you can boast because it was his work. And in fact, he created you so that you would work for him, but that's by his power and his gifting and his energizing of that. So he gets the credit for it. He is the one that receives the glory. And so God is magnified both in the purpose toward which he's moving you and the power by which he does it. And and the servants aren't exalted. Right? I mean, you can stand in front of a piece of art that's amazing and you can marvel at it, but you would never get that paint, you give that painting the credit for being a great painting. You wouldn't look at the painting and go, oh, man, what a wonderful job this painting did of itself. You would know there's an artist. And it was the skill of the artist that produced the masterpiece. And the artist would receive the praise and the honor and the glory. And everything that's being accomplished for Christ is the work of the artist the craftsman, the head of the church. And the praise then should be of him. We shouldn't boast in his servants. We should boast in the master. It is because of Christ that these things are done. And the eternal display of God's kindness will actually be seen not only that we are saved, but that we have served him in good works. So God will be glorified through it. And that's the point of it. You know, I, I, I come back to this fairly regularly because it is so upstream against the downstream current of our world. Everything, everything about salvation is God-centered. It's not man-centered. Right? God saves us for his glory. Doesn't mean we don't benefit from it. We certainly do. But at the end of it, it is going to be not so we can boast about how special we are, 
not so we can boast about anything about us. It actually will boast in Christ, will boast in God. Because it is about his glory. It is about him not only revealing his glory. He's rich in mercy with great love. The surpassing wealth of his grace, right? He reveals those things to us in salvation. But actually what he produces is a testimony of his greatness. Uh, a, a massive work of charity in which he reveals his character in the doing of it. And then when you see the result of it, you don't boast in the beauty of that, that finished monument. You boast in the glory of the one who built it. Now, I, I mean, I think there's lots of reasons why the downstream is away from that. I mean, we're inherently sinful and selfish, and so we like to think the world revolves around us. We like to take good truths and, and twist them, right? I must be special because God doesn't make junk. Or I must be worth a lot because Jesus died for me, so look at me. Or, wow, look at the beauty of creation and how, how it's all designed to sustain life. I must be really important. Right? That we, we like to turn it all toward us. But what it's actually supposed to do is cause our mouths to drop and go, wow, look at God. The heavens declare his glory. Right? When we stand in heaven, it won't be, worthy am I because the lamb was slain. It'll be, worthy is the lamb. Right? He deserves the praise, not me. So, so we like to twist even good truths in ways that feed our self-ego, really. And there is a little bit of it because when you see somebody who does everything for their own glory on a human plane, we would think that person's what? Proud, selfish, sinful. Right? So all of a sudden you go, God does everything for his own glory. And you're like, like, what kind of a ogre is he? Well, here's, I mean, this is not a newsflash, right? But God's different than us. If you do everything for you, it actually is sinful. But who alone deserves glory? God. I mean, he... When he actually pursues his own glory, he is actually pursuing the highest righteous good there is. Right? If, if you worship the create, creation, you're sinning. You worship the creator, you're actually doing exactly what the point of creation is. But it's not just that it's right. When somebody who is described in this way in your presence is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. That's what it says about God. When that God says, come to me, he's actually, he's actually telling you the best news you could possibly hear. He's saying, Come to the fountain of joy. Come to the one who can truly satisfy you. Come to the one who actually is worthy of all of your worship and devotion. He's actually pointing you in the perfect direction. If I stood up and said it, I'd be leading you to hell. I said, come worship me. You'll find True satisfaction, serve me. I will make your life meaningful. I would be leading you straight to hell because you can only worship and serve God. But when God says it, it is the best thing you could ever hear because he's true. He's worthy of it. He's righteous. He's rich in mercy. He saves graciously. So it starts 
from God's glory is accomplished in a way that brings God glory. And the result of it is for God's glory so that no one may boast that no one will try to take the credit from God. This is the point of it. And, and look at the last part of verse 10, because it's important to see the bookend here, right? Verse 10 says, so that we would walk in them. How did the, how did the chapter start? Look at verse two. You were, or verse one, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked, formerly walked. Right? So beginning of the chapter, here's where you were. You formerly walked like this, but by God's grace, he has made you alive. He's raised you up. He's seated you in the heavenly places. He's created you in Christ Jesus for good works that you would walk in them. He's fundamentally at the root level changed the nature of a sinner into a servant of Jesus Christ. He's taken them out of their desperate lost condition in verses one through three and made them a trophy of his grace so that they can walk in newness of life. That that's what it means to go from death to life. It's not earned, it's received by faith. And so here's the glory of God in salvation. And we look at these verses, over four weeks we've looked at them, and, and here's what ought to be going on in our hearts. Right? You ought to be going, am I alive spiritually? Because if I'm alive spiritually, then that would mean I was created in Christ Jesus for good works. There would be evidence of life. Right? And, and one of the, one of the tragic mistakes of, of false religion is to reduce, reduce the idea of salvation to just sort of a, a creed. Okay, I've got some information, right? But I actually haven't been born again. Or to dislocate it from, from life in such a way is it's just sort of a feeling, right? I sort of feel okay toward God, but disconnected from actually the power of God to change the life. Right and 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 certain certain I mean not certain massive amounts of religions turn it into a, a a basically a transactional kind of deal. Right, I can go do the sin I want to go do as long as I go back and cover my bases. Right, I I can run out and sin, and then I can go buy forgiveness through my efforts or through my confession or through my religious rituals. And it's just a constant transaction that reflects the fact that it's not actually that you're alive spiritually, it's that you're buying your way to heaven. And that's not what this text is talking about. If you've been born again, you are created in Christ Jesus, then God will be doing his work in you, right? Is there life? Is there real spiritual life in you that is the result of the rich mercy of God and his grace? And if you have been made alive, what does God want you to do for him? Right? I mean, here's this text, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand so that you would walk in them. So, so what is it that God wants you to do for him? What does he want you to do for him? You can narrow that in by what part in the body of Christ has he designed you to play? Because chapter 4 makes that clear. I think another simple way to do it is Titus chapter 2 and 3.14 says, our 
our people need to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. Do you know, you know how you understand what God wants you to do? You have your eyes open to see where there are pressing needs so that you can engage in good deeds as a result of the fruitfulness of the work of God in you. He certainly, he certainly has not saved anybody to be a bystander or a spectator. Right? He didn't just say, hey, I'm going to get you to heaven. Enjoy the rest of your life until I see you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to one day welcome you to heaven, but before you get there, make sure you get enough toys, have enough fun, climb enough ladders. That's, that's not what this text is saying. He created you in Christ Jesus for good works. What is it that God wants you to do for his glory? To show him that you love him because he loved you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for providing a way for us to be saved that is powerful, like a work of creation, that is a gift to be received by faith. And so, Lord, help us to see clearly in your word, your truth, the message of our salvation, and to put our hope in Christ and Christ alone. And if, having trusted in Christ, we understand what he's done for us, then we'll no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us. And so please help us this morning to make certain that it is the truth of your word that controls our thinking about salvation and about what it means to serve Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.